just thank um, BCRW and Janet Jacobson and all the people who worked on this conference. It's a really exciting event, and I'm looking forward to uh, going to uh, panels all day today and tomorrow. Um, this particular panel is based on a multi-year project. It's one panel in a, in a series of, of events um, that has been taking place over two years, which is called New Majorities, Shifting Priorities. Um, and that, the purpose of this, of this project, um, which began with a survey of uh, directors of women's studies, ethnic studies, post-colonial studies programs, and the various institutionalizations, um, it began with a survey from them asking what their problems were, what was happening um, around the country, and we got a really uh, good uh, set of responses from that. And then we held a two-day conference at UCLA, um, and, uh, and then we had, a, we had a panel at NYU, and now we are here today at Barnard College to try to keep the conversation going. Um, the purpose of the new majorities, shifting priorities, project was to have us all confront our current situation, um, budget cuts and abolitions and challenges to all kinds of interdisciplinary programs, um, through a process through a, a process over a long period of time, but of thinking ahead of the administrative of the of the administration run transformations that are taking place in the manufactured climate of a budget crisis. Um, so the idea here was to uh, both imagine what we would like, how we would like to think about the ways our projects have been, our fields have been institutionalized, and to really imagine, you know, how we might leave all the practical considerations aside at first and think about how we would want to reinvent the organization of knowledge in the 21st century uh, uh, university. If we, if, we could do, if, we, if we could do exactly what we wanted to, what, what would that be in terms of uh, uh, trying to, before we get into a defensive posture and just respond to budget uh, crises and, and attacks from the administration? Um, the programs of, of women, gender, and sexuality studies, African-American, Latino, Native American, and Asian Pacific studies, or the collectivity called ethnic studies, and for post-colonial studies, and those aren't the only ones, but those were the ones we were focusing on to begin with. Um, these are both, uh, their institutionalizations, um, often as separate sites, has been necessary, uh, beginning in the 70s with student insurgencies, um, to establish uh, programs that both uh, connected um, uh, knowledge production to, to social movements um, and also uh, allowed us to bring in populations and subjects that were um, being excluded by um, mainstream knowledge production. Um, so, but, but many of us, I think probably most of us, thought of these institutionalizations as self-abolishing, right? We thought of them as this is what we need to do, but eventually we're going to remake the university as a whole um, with these addressing the projects uh, that we came in with and addressing social movements. Um, and uh, you know, so we both... Um, needed to uh, have these programs to do that work and then also now find us in the position of um, having to argue for them in the face of administrative attack without sort of looking at the kind of balkanizations that have occurred and the way that many, many people's research and knowledge production don't fit easily uh, into these categories and they, they uh, overlap so much. 
Um, and it creates all kinds of divisions and also a kind of stuck-in-timeness sometimes to the, to the moment at which the programs were established so that women's studies programs have tended to be overwhelmingly white. Ethnic studies programs have tended to not be so receptive to feminism and queer theory. Um, and we've, we're kind of, uh, we've been stuck with that, and now we're having to defend it um, in the face of, defa- of, of attacks. But we haven't really um, rethought what we want um, now that we're here in the 21st century, how could we imagine reorganizing knowledge production so that it really served us in all our overlapping um, political and intellectual commitments? Um, you know, instead, we're facing a kind of premature um, uh, abolition, really not at all on our terms in, in, in many cases. Um, so we wanted to both, we wanted to get ahead of the administration uh, transform the way that administrations were seeing transformation um, by really imagining otherwise to cite one of our panelists, Candace Chu. Um, both, were, both with regard to our vision and then also with regard to the pre- pragmatic considerations also about how we then go about approaching um, uh, the transformations that we wish for rather than just sort of fighting for, for turf um, in the face of budgets. Uh, problems. So um, uh, what we did then was we uh, produced a, um, a, a set of a question for our panel today to address, which is an iteration of the panel of the questions that were addressed at UCLA and that were addressed at NYU. So our panelists today are being asked to, to answer this question. If you suddenly had the power to remake the university in any way that you wanted, how would you instant yes, <laughs> any way. It could happen (laughs) to institutionalize gender, women's, LGBT, post-colonial, and ethnic studies. How could the university be structured to position these areas and concerns as central rather than marginal to the academic mission? There are representatives from different types of institutions on this panel, um, and so they will be speaking on the vision level or in relationship to the institutions where they find themselves. A lot of these battles are very uniquely local, um, as well as there's you know, a set of connections about what's happening overall. Um, so uh, we've asked them to consider contingent labor and reduction of latter faculty positions to the, the uh, positioning of students as consumers and a consumer model to the new metrics through which universities and their corporate guide, uh, guardians are assessing what works and what doesn't. And in the face of these shifts, are there specific institutional or structural arguments that gender and sexuality studies, ethnic and post-colonial studies, studies are especially positioned to offer as a counter to the corporatized university? So that's a very small uh, little, little question. I'm sure they have seven to ten minutes, but it's not really going to take that long. I'm really totally sure of that. Um, so I want to then introduce our panelists. They will be speaking in alphabetical order. Um, so uh, I begin with Candace Chu down at the end, uh, who joined the CUNY Graduate Center in 2010 as a professor in the PhD program in English and as a core member of the Mellon Committee on Globalization and Social Change. We were all very excited in the uh, uh, New York metropolitan region to get, um, to get Candace up here. Um, She's also responsible for the Revolutionizing American Studies Initiative launched at the Graduate Center in spring 2011. From 96 to 2010, she was a faculty member in the English department at the University of Maryland College Park, where she was affiliated to the American Studies Department and the Asian American Studies Department. Yes, many of us have these joint appointments. Very, 
<laughs> the author of Imagine Otherwise on Asian Americanist Critique, which came out in 2003 and won the American Studies Association's Laura Romero Book Prize. Um, she has published in uh, such venues as Public Culture, American Literary History, and the Journal of Asian American Studies. Her current book project, the, the Difference Aesthetics Makes, brings together aesthetic philosophies and theories, minority discourse, and analysis of globalization's impact on modern socio-political subjectivity. Chu is broadly interested in the relationship between intellectual work and the political sphere, disciplinarity and difference, and U.S. culture and politics as matrices of power and knowledge. I'm doing these extended introductions because, you know, where the panelists are positioned in their work and their institution will, will um, uh, really contribute to both their remarks and our, and our discussion. Um, so uh, Anne Pellegrini, you know, Anne Pellegrini t- sent me two sentences of an introduction, did you think I was really going to stick to that? <laughs> a little expansion. So, uh, I did. Um, Anne Pellegrini works on a boring, arcane subject. Uh, the, the, the nexus of religion and sex. <laughs> She's a queer theorist extraordinaire, She's both prolific and influential across many fields, and she's my colleague at NYU, where she is a professor in the performance studies and in the religious studies department at NYU, another joint appointment, um, where she also directs, because she doesn't, two hats are not enough, she also directs the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality at NYU. Her books include Performance Anxieties, Staging Psychoanalysis, Staging Race, and Love the Sin, Sexual Regulation, and the Limits of Religious Tolerance, which she co-authored with Janet Jacobson. She's currently completing a new book on queer performance between the religious and the secular. She's also editor of the Sexual Cultures book series at at NYU Press, which along with Jose Munoz. And um, she has a list of articles and anthologies on top of this. It's like pages long. Um, but uh, in addition to the books that I just cited, I'll just mention a couple of major things. She has a co-edited collection called Secularisms, um, a co-edited collection called Queer Theory and the Jewish Question, um, and uh, really a range of articles on things like Hell House, The Dogs of War and the Dogs at Home, just hell of a play. There's just uh, The titles are kind of fantastic. So um, Anne Pellegrini will be speaking second. Third, Sarita C., who has um, come to New York to participate in the panel. Sarita C. was born in New York as a child of a Singaporean diplomat, an embassy brat, she says. She was raised moving from city to city around the world. She received her B.A. from UC Berkeley, where she first became involved with U.S. women of color politics, especially the arts and culture movement. At Berkeley, she first learned about the history of Asian Americans, including her own grandfather's and granduncle's migration to the United States from the Philippines in the 1920s. She obtained her PhD in English and comparative literature at Columbia University. While living again... She survived. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You have a hand-holding While living again in New York City, she met the Filipino-American artists and writers who inspired and continue to inspire her teaching and scholarship. She recently joined the faculty of UC Davis, where she's associate professor of Asian American Studies. 
She's taught at University of Michigan and Women's Co- and Williams College. Her research interests include Filipino-American cultural critique, post-colonial empire studies, and Asian-American literature performance and visual culture. I don't think that's enough. Why are you so narrow? <laughs> She's the author of The Decolonized Eye, Filipino-American Art and Performance, which offers decolonial ways of analyzing a range of contemporary Filipino-American cultural production and argues that new forms of aesthetic and performative abstraction expose the history of American imperialism as itself a kind of abstraction. With Angel Velasco Shaw, she co-edited a catalog that accompanied the group art exhibition out of the archive, Process and Progress, which commemorated the launch of Art Asia America, is that the way you pronounce it? Art Asia America, a digital archive of Asian and, and, and Asian American contemporary art history created by a com- community-based organization, Asian American Art Center, based here in Manhattan. She's co-founder of the new Philippine-centric organization and forthcoming website called the Center for Global Art and Thought. Using the contemporary medium of the digital as part of a conscious process, they envision, the, they envision the center as a transnational venue for more meaningful reciprocal encounters between art, artists and scholars and are committed to fostering new forms of literacy rather than tutelage and to, tr- and to the transformation rather than the mere transmission and replication of knowledge. So um, we're going to, each of the panelists is going to speak from seven to ten minutes, and then we will have, um, we, we hope to have quite a bit of time for discussion of the issues that are raised here. So um, beginning with Candace Chu. Okay. Um, so thank you all for coming, and um, thanks particularly to Janet Jacobson and all of the um, masses of people um, uh, who are involved in putting this together. I wanted to also say thank you to Anna Lisa particularly for inviting me onto this panel. Um, and maybe uh, thank you to Jose because he's the one who talked me into applying for my job. And so um, <laughs> this is the reason that I actually got into New York. So um, I'm going to open my remarks today by referring to another set of opening remarks, specifically those that Janet Jacobson offered by way of introducing the public feeling salon held here, um, here as in the Barnard um, Center for Research on Women, uh, last spring organized around Lauren Berlant's cruel optimism work and including, among other distinguished panelists, Anne Pellegrini and Jose Munoz. Um, Janet located that event in a genealogy of what has turned out to be a long-term and multifaceted project engaged in reflecting on what she described as, quote, the unfinished business of feminism. I think we might think through the multiple futures of gender and sexuality studies along these lines. Janet's phrase sticks for me because of the difference between thinking feminism and thinking studies. For, and this is one of the lines of flight I want to mark today, I think that it's important that we continue to insist upon gender and sexuality as categories of analysis of the modalities and distributions of security and vulnerability producing as well as articulated in and on specific bodies. Or in other words, I think it's crucial that such terms as gender and sexuality are not allowed to function in the academic realm as adjectives and rather retain or are refunctioned to emphasize their critical leverage as politico-epistemic axes of analysis. Feminism can do much of this work, um, and specifically I have in mind the, uh, the feminisms that emerge out of the genealogies of women of color feminism and queer of color critique. Feminism works best, is most magnetic, most incisive, most catalyzing, when it attends to the different differences marked by gender and sexuality and works intersectionally in a processual way, which is my way of roughly defining how I'm using that term here. Um, So I'm collapsing a whole bunch of genealogies for the purpose of these remarks, um, and I'm asking feminism to do a lot of work here uh, rhetorically. The unfinished business of feminism also resonates for for me because of its invocation of economies. 
that the academy is structured as a kind of business, as a site through which certain kinds of transactions are negotiated and accomplished, where students and knowledge are variously considered the products or clients of the institution, where the language of value and growth and investment are familiar parts of the ways in which knowledge practices are measured, weighted, and differentially privileged, is quickly becoming the common sense understanding of the institution. What I think of is the various institutional iterations of minority discourse, gender and sexuality studies and ethnic studies among them, are located within these institutional economies, and the contradictoriness of that location has been compellingly established by a number of critics. Where 40 years ago, that contradiction might have mapped into fairly predictable lines that separated upper-level administrators from such minority discourse programs and practitioners, now, among those upper-level administrators are those who came through those programs, or at least, and probably far more regularly, came through the university at a time when those programs were a part of its fabric. So part of what intrigues me is how, despite the transformations that the establishment of minority discourse within the university both represents and effected, the business of feminism is as yet unfinished. Or in other words, and maybe more productively put, is it possible that institutionality and feminism and its aligned projects are radically incommensurate, um, that they are impossible to bring into correlation, that our efforts to sustain and create institutional structures for the advancement of minority discourse cannot but ever remain unfinished? I don't, mean it, I don't at all mean that minority discourse has no place within the academy. What I do mean is, and I have Rod Ferguson, Roderick Ferguson's forthcoming work on theorizing the relationship of the academy to minority difference squarely in mind, that the business of feminism might be generatively conceived of as deliberately antagonistic to institutionality, where the institution refers to the academy. In an essay titled the, uh, Administering Sexuality or the Will to Institutionality, um, he offers incisive caution about, quote, the promise of permanence that institutionality holds out and analyzes the ways that contemporary modalities of institutional power operate to dull the politico-epistemic edges of minority discourse practices by, in effect, normalizing difference. Along these lines, it seems to me it might be fruitful to ask two questions. First, what kinds of institutional norms would make it possible to continue the work of thinking through minoritized differences? And second, how do we ensure that those norms don't remain fixed? To begin to address these questions, I want to return to my first plot line, the conceptualization of what are often thought of as categories of identity as instead categories of analysis. Anne and Lisa, in the framing questions they offered as points of departure for thinking about this panel, asked, <clears throat> how could the university be structured to position these areas and concerns as central rather than marginal to the academic mission? In a very straightforward way, my response is to consider the ways that however the university is structured, the concerns of minority discourse not only ought to be, but can be made central to the academic mission by insisting on minority discourse as a complex of theoretical and methodological interventions that get at the very heart of the fundamental issues organizing the idea of the university. To be sure, institutional formations like programs in gender and sexuality studies can serve as vital sites to resource such efforts at epistemic promiscuity and depth. They also function from the institutional perspective as evidence of its commitment to diversity and fit tidily into the compartmentalization of knowledge um, that organizes university life. What I'm trying to sketch are two orientations that minority discourse might generatively, might generatively have in its relationship to institutionality. One, which has to do with the process of institutionalization, and the other that has to do with life after institutionalization or within the institution. If the former is a temporality within which the securing of resources unfolds, the latter is one within which we might emphasize the process of deterritorialization. 
What I'm getting at here is simply the reminder that while institutionalization may serve the ends of a project like minority discourse, institutionality cannot. For me, this observation is related to a series of thoughts with which I'll close these remarks. <clears throat> First, um, we who are ourselves practitioners of minority discourse have work to do in conceptualizing ourselves as part of a formation that is not marginal, but is in fact central to the university. That issues ranging from the growing dependence of universities on non-permanent faculty to the increasing emphasis on measurable outcomes and a vague but potent reliance on relevance as an indicator of the value of certain fields and disciplines describe the current cult cultural landscape as inescapable. Even as we recognize that these are very contemporary issues, we might also remember that these are precisely the kinds of issues that minority discourse formations have long been immersed in analyzing through their variegated attention to the axes of race, sexuality, gender, and so on. Which is also to say, minority discourse practitioners are ideally situated to undertake the challenge of advancing this analysis because we have never thought of the university as an ideal institution. We can afford to be neither naively optimistic nor wedded to nostalgic visions of the past lives of the university. From the perspective of minority discourse, the university has always been a troubled site, one that in some respects had to be brought to crisis in order to challenge its historically exclusionary practices. Far from being at the margins, the critical perspective of minority discourse was in this regard far ahead of its time. Second, the precise contours of the double tracks of institutionalization and deterritorialization that I'm ske sketching cannot but be specific to a location. Both at the University of Maryland and at the Graduate Center, my institutional home has been in English. These schools are enormously different from each other, um, yet the thing that I, ha I have found in common is the need in English to continue to articulate minority discourse as an intellectual project against a pre-existing understanding of it as principally a legacy of multicultural po multiculturalist politics. As a related but obverse example, I would make note of the Asian American Studies program at the University of Maryland College Park, the institutionalization of which uh, as such was part of my work during my time there. The drive for that program emerged out of student activism, um, much of which happened before, before I got to uh, Maryland in 96. Um, across the campus that has a couple of thousand faculty, there were perhaps two or three of us whose research or teaching was related to Asian American studies of any kind. I think it's probably like five or six now, something like that. Um, the arguments for establishing the program were advanced in the rhetoric of cam campus demographics, and it was a struggle in that context to try to embed any language of the epistemological work of Asian American studies. The program came to be housed under the administrative arm of undergraduate studies, rather than one of the academic colleges, arts and humanities, business and social sciences, engineering. Um, and thus, as a unit, it doesn't have the same kind of standing as women's, uh, women's studies or English or American studies, which are located in one of the academic colleges. So from the institutionalization perspective as well, it seems to me that we missed an opportunity to become entrenched across the university in ways that are now very difficult to establish. And I think in part that was a consequence of having institutionality itself as the objective um, of the movement to establish the program. There's a distinct difference between my experience of intellectual community, which is constituted interdisciplinarily, and my experience of professional community, which is about administering and participating in the life of the disciplinary unit. It is undoubtedly the fact that a discipline has been and is my primary institutional location that the exigency of casting minority discourse as theoretical and methodological arises and has traction for me. I experience this as a kind of spatio-temporal lag where English, categorically speaking, is behind the times, remaining willfully ignorant of what minority discourse is and does. 
My investment in trying to create openings to a different temporality is not for the sake of sustaining the disciplinary unit, but rather has to do with the thought that the transformation of this particular kind of institutional arrangement might be accomplished by advancing this understanding of minority discourse. What I think ought to happen is a different configuration of knowledge practices around the study and production of aesthetic work, one in which the kinds of questions being asked and the exigencies underlying them serve as its, organiza- serve as its organizing principle instead of periodization or geography. Because the questions and exigencies will necessarily change, so too would the organization of knowledge need to reconstellate. This kind of organizing principle, I think, might help, ke- might help to keep at bay the lore of the promise of permanence, keeping us, in essence, always in the mode of institutionalization of unfinishedness. Um, and finally... I mentioned to Anne and Lisa that I had a dream earlier this week that I broke out into song during my remarks. My, my subconscious is totally transparent. Um, this was no doubt incited by the fact that this panel was fast approaching, but also because I'm regularly inspired by Anne's work um, and the ways in which she inhabits that work. I swear if I could have come up with just the right song, I would have, do it. Uh, would have done it, but I'm not going to. Um, but what I think is really important, and what I'd like to think my sleeping mind was reminding me to say, is that there is a lot of pleasure to be found, and to be found sometimes unexpectedly, in undertaking the kind of work that we do. I'm increasingly aware of how important irony is in my life personally, but also in the ways in which we conceive of how the academy works, and specifically in its relationship to different kinds of differences. One of the things that I appreciate about irony is that it speaks of self-interruption, of not taking ourselves seriously so that we can take the work more seriously, of not disavowing the pleasures that ensue from this kind of work so that we can remain attached for the long haul, of recognizing that minority discourses operate both despite and because its work is unfinished and will be unfinished, so that one way of thinking about what minority discourses are trying to do is to proliferate on a really basic level, freedom and the conditions that enable its experience, even or perhaps especially when those freedoms take the form of breaking out into song. I'm really thrilled to be um, back here at Barnard. I began my academic career here, uh, five years here. um, um, It was my first job post-PhD, and it's actually um, a space that um, gives me lots of um, great memories, and I'm also thrilled to see some of my former undergraduates here um, waving in the back row. Um, so it, uh, Barnard has inspired me throughout my career, and um, I'm just really thrilled for the chance to be part of this conversation today. If I were to give my paper a title, it would be Justify My Love, Calling the Future. Over the past few years, the economic downturn has offered fresh justifications for cutting academic programs that conservatives never wanted to fund in the first place. To be sure, the effects of budget cuts and the ongoing corporatization of higher education nationally has been uneven, with some programs in gender and sexuality studies suffering major cuts, others actually expanding, still others being eliminated or threatened with elimination altogether, as has been the case with women's studies and Latino Latin American studies at Temple. Those programs were absorbed into other units. However, even where programs have not faced cuts outright, Faculty at both private and public institutions have come to share the sense that gender and sexuality studies, ethnic studies, post-colonial studies are all facing greater scrutiny and that we must justify and defend our existence in new ways. Now, this demand that we justify our existence is not new, but the stakes do seem to be higher at a time when nothing in the structure of higher education is to be taken for granted save its monetization. 
Increasingly, the language of justification seems to require speaking a bureaucratic language of deliverable, whether measured in terms of um, the revenue to be generated from students majoring in our fields, research support from outside funders, or the match between what we are teaching students in our classrooms and the job market they will enter post-graduation. In all these cases, the justification for what we teach and research is how it and we contribute to the marketplace not of ideas, but of capital accumulation. Consider in this regard the bipartisan hand-wringing, hooray at last, bipartisanship of U.S. politicians over the failure of American students to keep up with their international peers, a failure to keep up that is held to threaten the United States' economic future. At a moment when money is the measure of everything, this economic peril constitutes an existential threat to the future of America and the vaunted American dream. As President Obama put the matter in a March 2009 address on, quote, a complete and competitive American education, which he presented to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and now I'm quoting from his speech, the future belongs to the nation that best educates its citizens, and my fellow Americans, we have everything we need to be that nation. After this Olympian puff of nation-building spirit, the president expended a considerable amount of his speech detailing why the U.S. has actually fallen behind, despite having everything we need to win that future. Now, Kel Surprise, one of the reasons we have fallen behind, according to the president, is that other nations, and he specifically singled out Singapore in the speech, other nations are, in his words, spending less time teaching things that don't matter and more time teaching things that do. They're preparing their students not only for high school or college, but for a career. We are not. Close quote. Now, when educational success is measured in these narrow terms, who needs gender and sexuality studies, post-colonial studies, ethnic studies, or, hey, critical thinking at all? <laughs> we can all go home now. Now, we surely can't refuse to speak in these increasingly financialized administrative registers outright. To do so would be a kind of institutional suicide. But is it also possible to shift the conversation and make other sorts of claims, whether sung or spoken, for why what we do matters and how this mattering cannot be reduced to monetized inputs and outputs? And this would certainly be a different kind of mattering than the bottom line extolled by the president, if only we were spending less time teaching things that don't matter. We wouldn't be so far behind. Put another way, what if we, scholars and students of gender and sexuality studies, post-colonial studies, ethnic studies, what if we were to justify our value as consisting precisely in the fact that our programs are not economically valuable? For arguably, one of the things we do in our classrooms and through our research is generate ways of thinking and expressing values that go beyond and even challenge the monetization of everyday life and the capitalization of every facet of human relations. So what do we value and why? What are we passionate about? And might this be, these questions, might these be what we have to offer as teachers, the promise of an imaginary larger than the current social field? One of the most commonplace accusations made against queer studies, and I'll speak from this vantage point for the moment, is that we introduce sex where it doesn't belong, in the classroom. But frankly, I think the real issue here is that we might, on a really good teaching day, offer models of desire not readily assimilable to neoliberalism. Sex and desire are not necessarily congruent.
I probably don't have to tell everyone this. <laughs> With Lauren Berlant, I want to ask how normative practices, fantasies, institutions, and ideologies organize people's worlds. And these are Berlant's words, encourage them to identify having a life with having an intimate life of a particular kind. But what of those expressive relations or attachments that don't fit the mold of officially recognized intimacy? Do not produce proper relations between subjects and the state, between consumers and the market. Where, Berlant wonders, does the energy of attachment go when it has no designated place? Well, maybe it goes to the carol, to the cursor, to the classroom, or to the Barnard Center for Research on Women. <laughs> for many of us here today, books, and I would invite you to substitute a record. People remember record? A record, a film, a play. For many of us here today, books were our first love object, reading our first passionate aim. In the experience of reading, we learn something of what it is to imagine otherwise beyond the self. Favorite books sustain us. We're turning to them time and again. We keep falling in love with the authors or the subjects or the particular texts or even the historical epochs we study, recalling and reanimating the passions that brought us to our chosen fields in the first place, even if that is not what we thought brought us there, or even if we could yet narrate the departures and the arrivals in very different terms, and how fun that is. When I say that books sustain us, I mean also to point to the affective labor of making a book, or syllabus, or a conference paper, and to the intimate communities of interest that make such writing and thinking possible and pleasurable and necessary, and a thing to value well beyond dollars and cents. The language of economic value or career training is not adequate to the values we do make in our classrooms with our students or in the conference halls with each other. The future starts each day. Which ones will we make? Next is Sarita C. I want to um, uh, thank the BCRW staff, especially Pamela Phillips, uh, Jan Jacobson, and of course Lisa and uh, Anne for this opportunity to be here inside on this rainy day. Um, I'm coming uh, most immediately from nine years teaching at the University of Michigan, which as you may know um, has the uh, uh, wonderful record of denying tenure to you know some of the most brilliant and dynamic women of color faculty I know. Um, but it also is, um, has a massive imperial archive on the Philippines based on a collection that starts um, from the 1880s on, so before the United States conquest um, of the Philippines, um, and in contrast has absolutely no budget or infrastructure to actually study that um, archive in any kind of critical way. So it's that kind of really weird um, tension between this massive structure and then <laughs> no chaos, you know, no narrative, really, no story, no interpretive faculties um, for that uh, archive. Um, and I also am coming from, um, most immediately, from being one of the organizers of the Critical Ethnic Studies Conference um, at um, that we uh, put together at one of the most underfunded uh, campuses in the UC system at UC Riverside. Uh, so, toward the centrifuge. I'm grateful for this opportunity to pause, to think, to play with words, so as to begin to imagine a non-propertied space of decolonial knowledge production. As Cedric Robinson puts it in Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition, quote, is there knowledge in the service of not knowing? Study as unowning un knowledge, unquote. Is there a university that we can imagine, let alone build in the West, that would be able to foster, quote, 
the preservation of the ontological totality granted by a metaphysical, metaphysical system that had never allowed for property in either the physical, philosophical, temporal, legal, social, or psychic sense, unquote. Stuart Hall contends that, quote, if signification depends upon the endless repositioning of its differential terms, meaning in any specific instance depends upon the contingent and arbitrary stop, the necessary and temporary break in the infinite semiosis of language, even as meaning continues to unfold, so to speak, beyond the arbitrary closure, which makes it at any moment possible. For what is at issue in the current intensified cycle of the raiding of what is left of the public good, the commons in the United States, in the form of the university, is how we grasp and apply that idea of that temporary break and that contingent stop. Here's another way to put this in the form of questions. How might we contend with the tension between, on the one hand, the intransigent insistence on impermanence and fluidity that characterizes the fields and post-disciplines and interdisciplines of ethnic studies and decolonizing studies, and on the other hand, the university's emphasis on monumentality and permanence um, in the very processes of institutionalizing emergent fields. And this is a process that both calcifies and conserves these new fields of knowledge production. Even and perhaps especially in the face of this new cycle of defunding, theft, and privatization, how might we continue to insist ethically, politically, and intellectually, and intimately on the urgency of opening up rather than shutting down the spaces for non-rationalized forms of knowledge production, even and especially for those forms that thrive under conditions of impermanence and ephemerality rather than institutionalized permanence? How might we abide by the precepts outlined in the Guide to Samoan Studies, published in 2005 in the first issue of the Journal of Samoan Studies, which include tenets like, number one, Keep the topics open and flexible. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Number two, don't be afraid to do it your way and avoid addiction to any one approach to research or publication. Number three, study what and publish what you in and of Samoa need to publish, not what someone else might consider appropriate. Number four, results get resources rather than the other way around. What might an alternative economy of anti-accumulative knowledge look like? In what kind of university could we learn these lessons of unowning knowledge? In particular, how could we take this 40th anniversary as an opportunity to rethink the center as a centrifuge? I'd like to use, and okay, so this is in my 10th grade grasp of a centrifuge, (laughs) and I had a terrible (laughs) physics teacher. It's this machine, right, that spins around, and, and all these forces, right, um, separate out things, and it goes out rather than in. Okay, so that's my metaphor. So I'd like to use my remaining time to describe the philosophy of a new autonomous organization that I'm co-founding with my partner in crime, um, Angel Lasco Shaw, who's a wonderful filmmaker and longtime adjunct educator. Um, This organization and uh, forthcoming website is very modestly called the Center for Global Art and Thought. Um, We conceive of it as an independent Philippine-centric space for the convergence of art and scholarship, and we draw upon the curator Heijin Kim's definition of independence as, quote, the ability to question in the public and for the public. 
So it will take us a while to really get this going, but it's the kind of university that we want and need to, um, exi- to see exist in this world. We realized that we wanted a space to analyze the rifts between artists and scholars that can be traced to the foundations of European thought and that fundamentally structure the art world, the university, and the public sphere in the West. A space to imagine alternatives, alternatives to what might be called the international division of art and thought. So an important um, part of this process of imagining and designing this organization has involved answering the question, what does Philippine-centric mean? It means that the center um, is a dynamic process, not a static, fixed entity. The fact that the Philippines is is composed of more than 7,000 islands and more than 80 ethno-linguistic groups is often cited as a way to astonish non-Filipinos. But it's really taken... (laughs) It's like... um, It's a way of greeting. (laughs) But it's really take it's rarely taken as a source of strength, right? And so we're I'm I'm doing a shout out here to those of us who are in uh, work with archipelagos, right, and come from the various archipelagos of islands. Indeed, the Philippines' diversity and historical lack of a strong state usually are cited as one of its major weaknesses, as opposed to say Singapore, right. However, we propose taking advantage of and making productive this very weak conceptualization of center in the Philippine worldview. We take for granted the extraordinary heterogeneity of the Philippines. This lack of strong traditions of centrism, homogeneity, and isolation, unlike that of the continent, is something that we take as a source of artistic insight and intellectual strength. Thus, we conceive of the center as centrifugal in the sense that it takes as a point of departure the way in which the Philippines physically, demographically, historically, and culturally is composed of forces that tend to move away from a center. It means shifting from thinking of center as a noun to thinking of center as a verb. The Philippines and the Filipino diaspora are proposed not so much as a stable object of study that provides content uh, for analysis or representation, but rather as an intellectual and conceptual framework for analyzing and thinking about the global. It means that centers of intellectual and artistic inquiry can, must, and do change. This kind of heterogeneity and syncretism produces fluidity, a state of flux, and constant centering and decentering, which work to exert pressure on existing dominant scholarly and artistic paradigms. What would transgender studies look like with the Philippines at its center? What would post-colonial studies look like with the Philippines at its center? What would Filipino-American studies look like with queer of color studies at its center? What would working class history look like with Puerto Rican studies at its center? And the centrifuge goes on and on. I extend my congratulations to the Center for Research on Women. I look forward to another 40 years of necessary work and necessary play as we work toward a centrifuge of ideas and creations such that literacy, rather than tutelage, remains or finally becomes the goal of the university. Thank you. There's a lot there to talk about. Um, we have about 15 minutes for Q&A, um, but uh, for just one minute, I'm going to grab the moderatrix privilege and make um, one comment that I think uh, is a running thread through all of the uh, all the presentations. Um, Rod Ferguson, who uh, Candace Chu referred to, was in New York last week, and he spoke at both NYU and uh, and CUNY. And um, you know, he spoke when he spoke at NYU. He talked about having been chair of American Studies at the University of Minnesota 
he came to see the aspiration for institutionalization as in many ways misguided um, and, and told us about uh, putting together um, a, a, a group that was non-budgeted, non-institutionalized, and how much how much better um, that served the interests of the folks involved. And he used the term informalization to talk about that. So I just, I think all, everyone here is talking about that from some, uh, from some angle, to not accept the terms of budgets and curricula and institutionalization, but to, to keep remaking the energies that brought us here in the first place. And uh, there's one example from NYU, which uh, um, uh, a number, a decade or so ago, uh, we used to have something called the Queer Faculty Group at NYU, informally referred to as Alquirda. Um, <clears throat> but <laughs> but we, um, we, we, um, we planned, we had so much fun, and we planned a couple of conferences, we had speakers, we had lots of events, and it was uh, uh, open borders, right? So it was both uh, um, other universities, non-academics, depending on interest, and it was all done out of, out of passion, and we, we raised money um, in an ad, an ad hoc way. So what happened ultimately, which is what we wanted, um, was to have an institutionalization, the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality, which Anne now directs. And in many ways, that was, an, you know, more resources, more continuous programming, the labor that was, you know, at least partly compensated. Um, but it also tended that institutionalization also kind of wiped out the energy of the queer faculty group. So that the kind of informalized energy that had gone into that sort of got put into the, and then, then it's necessarily, uh, as an institutionalized location, required to, um, you know, uh, follow, follow the budget protocols, appeal to deans, uh, work on programming, you know, that, that is, uh, fits in with the university's priorities. They managed to be very subversive in any event, CSGS. But it was just an example of the way informalization can produce a context for knowledge production that um, these institutionalized forms, even when we have fought for them and they are our success, can some put a damper on what we can do and put us under a kind of control, regime of control. So um, Q&A. I'm from California. I'm from a public institution of higher education. I don't know if you read uh, the press, I'm sure you do, about what's happening in California. We've just received a $500 million cut at both the UC and the CSU level. Um, I'm part of a, a, a university, San Francisco State, that has been cut from eight colleges to six. The social sciences are gone. And uh, that is just a segue to say that small programs uh, uh, less than 10 will be absorbed and disbanded. And that means the programs of the 60s. That is to say women's studies, environmental studies, labor studies, sexuality studies. Uh, so when you speak about impermanence and you speak about um, organizing around inquiry and research questions rather than disciplines uh, without addressing issues of power and resources, I am concerned that in this wish to not be formalized and channeled and institutionalized, you'll get what you wish for <laughs> and you'll regret it because it's, there's a convergence between what you're saying you want and what they want for you. Yeah, I, I, could, I could offer uh, comments. I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and there's some sense, actually, as Lisa was talking, I was thinking, and I'm looking at Janet sitting here, and I'm thinking, Actually, these kinds of spaces, right, 
need to be protected in some way. Um, uh, we started the Revolutionizing American Studies Initiative last spring with a, an event organized around Ruth Wilson Gilmer's work. And one of the things she said was, you know, we must protect this building. And I thought, yeah, actually, like that's, that is a step from, from the perspective of already being in the institution, how to find modes of protection. I have to say, in terms of California, I, I find it such a big problem I don't actually understand how to enter into it. And partly it's because I'm not there, but also it's so it's on a scale that is um, almost incomprehensible to me what's happening uh, through the UC system, but also in the state and the realignments of funding toward um, more law enforcement, less education, which are really dramatic and stark. Um, and this is largely coming out of Ruthie's work as well. Um, so, so yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the, the process of institutionalization and the idea of impermanence is not the same thing. But, I, but part of what I want to say is if we can find ways to be the sleeper cells wherever we are, then it doesn't become about individual units. It becomes about the entire place. So that there should be, that it shouldn't be possible to think physics without thinking feminism. It shouldn't be possible to think math without thinking race. And that hasn't happened yet, I think, to the extent that it needs to. And I don't mean in the, like, you know, let's count how many degrees were produced by these kinds of bodies, but, um, but in the actual epistemic structures. So I'm not, I don't want to disagree with you by any means, and I would absolutely, you know, um, want to protect the kinds of institutional spaces that already exist that can be launching pads. But I think that those are the kinds of examples that show us that that's never going to be enough, right? That it's, there are always other kinds of work that have to happen as well. Um, and then the other thing about, was... It, it's about yeah. supplementation, not replacement. It's supplementation. Right, it's about yeah. all, alternate sensors of yeah. energy that can keep the transformational energy going. It's not right. about trying to wipe out the, what we have, which is really no, what brought absolutely. us here. Right. I mean, and I also think the other thing is that, you know, that kind of the informalization that you're talking about is really suggestive and powerful that maybe the kinds of work that we want to see happen are not going to happen in the universities as we have known them. So that, that the, if the objective is the transformation of the sociopolitical, that the university in certain kinds of ways can't do all of that work. And so it may be that in certain, in certain locations, in certain moments, we're going to have to establish new sites, new formal, informal, institutionalized, whatever, and, and then find the resources for them. And always it's about resources, right? It's about how do you actually let somebody live, you know, in order to be able to do that kind of work. Hi, first of all, thank you so much. I have been out of, outside of academia for like 15 years, and this is like my brain is coming alive. <laughs> it's very exciting. Uh, woo! Um, but a question I have as someone who has been outside of academia for so long, this is all kind of bringing me back to that life and what that was like. And you're talking about this fluidity, um, movement, dynamism around... I guess, academia generally, at least that's how, I'm, how it's hitting me. I'm curious to see if any of you have any thoughts about how <laughs> shifting this or adjusting this would affect the practicalities of moving beyond university. For, let's say, your students studying and being involved in this dynamic way of learning, how that would impact or affect jobs or moving into the world and having it be a reality, how that would affect it, this vision you have. If I could just make a quick response to that. I think that, you know, in, in, in the shift that I was sort of, 
calling for. I mean, part of it is, you know, a thought experiment, but I also mean it. And that I don't think we can abnegate our responsibility as teachers to teach students, you know, sort of skills in close reading and writing, things that, in fact, they do need for, you know, to go out to get jobs. I'm not saying abandon that, but I think that that is, in some sense, that's not my job. I don't... I think that that's falling well short, but that's what we're being asked to do. I'd rather, you know, ask of a student not what do you want to do, but what makes you passionate? What do you, what do you value, right? So that, they, that, you know, no matter where they end up, they can continue to ask these value questions about what, where their passions are. I mean, why shouldn't we all get to have a calling? And to, to, to resuscitate, you know, to sort of bring up a term that, you know, um, uh, Janet will laugh. I've been teaching Weber the last two weeks. And <laughs> Weber makes me think of her in a loving way. Um, and I was just teaching science as vocation and sort of just thinking about, well, what does it mean to really claim? And he doesn't mean science in a narrow way. He actually means, knowledge, you know, engaging in practices of knowledge, uh, the vocational call of the classroom. But to offer to students the idea that they get to have callings too that doesn't have to be linked to what job they have. The job is not they. Sorry, I had to be grammatically correct. Um, and that is a different version of let them live, right? That we have to think about life, but not in the biopolitical reduction of the metrics of population, of sort of economization of life in that sense. Hi, contingent faculty checking in. Um, Anne, you said I might never get a job, but I totally got one. Um, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. Um, so my question is in terms of sort of I like this idea of this insistence of impermanence and thinking about institutionalization as a project that keeps going on um, and that's never finished. I'm worried a little bit about, like, I keep getting kicked out of sleeper cells, and I'm not the only one, you know, in this sort of contingent faculty seems to be what staffing programs now. And, you know, I keep being the only one in the program, and then I leave and they replace me with a younger me who's awesome. Um, But, like, what are ways that sort of, those of you with a uh, sort of tenured position, like how do you think about this relationship between contingent faculty and the kind of institutionalization that though you don't have it, you do have it compared to some of us? I mean, really, uh, sort of very concretely and practically speaking, um, as one of the survivors of the sort of you know tenured genocide that went down at UM, <laughs> um, meaning that my, my case was the only one the reverse, that was reversed in my year, um, I... Um, I mean, that's why I'm actually, I, I realize that, that that is my privilege and, um, and to have um, a relatively stable position um, in the university and access to um, resources dwindling as they are, um, especially in relationship to the contingent faculty. Um, very concretely, that's why I'm working with my um, co-founding partner who is a longtime adjunct educator, but she's also an artist, um, and so that kind of insistence on independence is also connected to her, 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 um, to her work as an adjunct um, uh, laborer. Um, but that, of course, has been overtaken by the ways in which, um, you know, the exploitation of, of contingent faculty has become, you know, sort of standard. Um, so, so that to me is just a really kind of uh, one small way to to um, to heed uh, Janet Jacobson's earlier, you know, um, quotation um, of the author of Dead Men Walking. Uh, to 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 make that kind of alliance and and coalition uh, building so that the distribution of resources can happen, but it might happen in a small way, and then we'll, we're going to build um, big. But I did want to kind of come back qu- quickly to the first question from the um, California um, 
uh, from California. I, I, you know, I, I am an alumna of um, UC Berkeley, and when I was an undergraduate there, we were paying four hundred dollars per semester. Right, that is obviously not what it costs now. Um, um, and so I, I want to say, in, in my kind of defense of impermanence and fluidity, this is not to say that we have every right to expect the university to be a haven, a refuge, right, for the kind of quirky, weird, and queer and perverse work that we wanted to come to the university to in the first place, right? So we have every right to expect that that safe space that, of course, that is not how it turns out to be, but that 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 expectation must not be diminished um, as utopian or idealistic um, that might be. On the other hand, I have to say, you know, with all the support that I have gotten um, in, in uh, you know, in you know, getting my PhD across the street at that evil pit of snakes, you know, Columbia, <laughs> and and barely surviving, you know, UM with all the support and you know all this stuff, you know, I, I just barely made it. This is not a you know having all the resources has not been this piece of cake. You know, this is this is not. It's, it's very time. very damaging. So okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, we'll hustle off to the next.